Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Well, being that today is October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, meaning that we are on the eve of All Saints' Day, it is not surprising to me that Frank Furtschneider came to my mind this week. Frank was a dear member of the Atascadero United Methodist Church where I served from 2009 to 2013. Every so often on his way out of worship, Frank would shake my hand and with a twinkle in his eye, he would say, well, pastor, you went from preaching to meddling today. Now, I honestly do not remember having heard that cliche before Frank shared it with me. But the implication is that preaching is welcome if it focuses on uh, biblical people or biblical stories and reassures us of our salvation. Meddling is when the message provokes us to look inside, challenging our ways of thinking, our ways of acting, and even our ways of believing. To use more religious words, meddling is in the prophetic vein of Scripture, calling us to accountability and to repentance. And prophets are always less desired than pastors. But Frank actually welcomed meddling sermons. That's why he had a twinkle in his eye, because Frank was always seeking to live a life worthy of the gospel. For the past three weeks, we have been exploring the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And today we are shifting into the second half, the second three chapters of Ephesians. And the contents of the latter shift from preaching to meddling. They shift from what God has done for us in Jesus to what God wants to do in and through us. So I think we need to buckle up as we continue our seven-week look at Ephesians. Our theme is geared up for life, and our reading this morning comes to us uh, from the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 16. It's a lengthy reading. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. It's a long reading, as I said, but what a provocative start. The very first verse, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To say, as that verse does, that there is a life that is worthy of the gospel is also to say that there is a way of life that is not worthy of the gospel. That there are choices that we need to make as we live out our faith, and that the choices that we make will reveal if we are, as Ephesians 3.14 prayed, 3.17 prayed, sorry, whether we are rooted and grounded in love. We looked at that last week. The reading then proceeds to say that the primary sign of a gospel-worthy life is unity, which means that divisiveness is not worthy of the gospel. And note that the writer is not simply encouraging the church sort of, hey, just get along. No. He is begging. He is imploring. He is pleading. The tone is urgent. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The landscape of Christianity, I think you would agree, 
reveals scant evidence that we have heeded this appeal. Indeed, the vast array of denominational brands indicates our utter failure to make every effort to maintain unity. More troubling is, is how the local church, including ours, struggles to maintain unity in the bond of peace. This sketch strikes me as painfully accurate because division so often erupts over differing interpretations of scripture. I know this is hard to read, so on the blackboard it says churches and Christian movements throughout history, and you can see all the family tree, the breakoffs, and things like that, and then the person at the board says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And somebody says, Jesus is just so lucky to have us. And so, yes, all of our differing, uh, 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 our divisions, it so often erupts over differing interpretations of scripture or music, right? Our denomination is on the precipice of division regarding LGBTQ inclusion based on differing views of what scripture says. Much the same way, I should say exactly the same way, we previously divided on how to understand the Bible on the issue of slavery. And certainly those who claim to read the Bible most literally found that slavery was entirely biblical. Now, I guess we can take some solace in uh, these words, that these words would not have been written, they would have been needed at all, unless there was the same struggle for unity in the early Christian church. Remember, we've learned that Ephesians was attended to, intended to be a, a letter that would circulate among several churches that Paul had established in Asia Minor, not just in Ephesus. And yet, this encouragement to bear with one another by practicing humility, gentleness, and patience, it is not just a platitude. Now, I was going to say a trite platitude, but that's redundant. No, the words and these verses are meant to intrude and disturb and meddle with those of us who are not leading a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And I find it so fascinating, a paradox really, that an encouragement to humility and gentleness and patience would be so meddlesome. You know, I shared the scholarly suspicion that Ephesians was likely written by a close companion of the Apostle Paul. And that the letter seems to like want to be a, a summary, a compendium of Paul's thinking from his other writings. And so the author, of course, would not want to take credit, but would want to attribute that to Paul. 
But this being the case, it's not difficult to find corresponding thinkings, corresponding themes in other writings of Paul. And so we find appeals to unity throughout many of his letters. I, this morning, I, uh, we'll just read this one from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. Now I appeal, that's begging again. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and purpose. For it has been reported to me that there are quarrels among you. And then, just six verses later, Paul writes these words. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. Now let's reflect on that for a second. Paul is asserting that divisions, that, that quarreling, that bickering, actually empty the cross of its power. I mean, that is staggering. What Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has done for the world, can be undermined, can be sabotaged, can be erased by division and quarrels within the church. And again, by contrast, this means Power is actually added to the cross when we bear with one another in love, making every effort to maintain unity in the spirit by the bond of peace. Oh, my word. Who knew that the stakes were so high? Well, Paul... You know, for one, but not just Paul. In, in John 17, Jesus is praying for his followers on the, on the night of his arrest. And he says, uh, this is part of what he says, the glory that you have given me, he's praying to God, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that they have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How does the world know that God sent Jesus? That we are completely one. Earlier in John 13, 35, Jesus has said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If, like Paul after him, Paul is, was preaching what Jesus said, like Paul after him, Jesus is saying that unity being one in the same purpose of love will be the, the definitive sign to the world that Jesus was sent by God. You know what this means? It means that all of our best evangelistic strategies will be null and void if unity in Christ, if our oneness in Christ, if, if displaying 
Love for one another is not our primary, even singular aim. Indeed, according to Jesus, showing love for one another is our evangelistic strategy. Not going out and convicting people of, of sin, <laughs> telling them how broken they are and how much they need Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to pour down so much love that you can't not help to want to respond to it. I'm, I, this is Jesus saying this is how they'll know. But the mistake that we make again and again is thinking that unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God means that we need to think the same things and, 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 and uh, have the same opinions and the same viewpoints. And over the history of Christianity, we, we see that the creeds and doctrines of the essential faith, they just get longer and longer and longer. Now, I would never mean to say that uh, doctrines and statements of faith are not important. They are. They help move us in the right direction. But neither Jesus nor Paul preached nor practiced what we might call the homogeneity principle. Trying to make everybody think and believe exactly alike. It goes against the grain of what we've already seen in, in the book of Ephesians where, where the assertion is that Christ came down to break down the dividing walls of hostility between us and to establish in him one new humanity that would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that surpasses what we think what our opinions are. It's about the love of Christ. Verses 4 through 6 in our reading this morning address our human, our religious tendency towards division by using the word one seven times in just three verses. There's one body, there's one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in all. All. That sounds pretty expansive, doesn't it? Though written in Greek, the use of the word one is, is most likely uh, rooted in the Hebrew understanding of, a, uh, of this word. Uh, the word is ichad, spelled E-C-H-A-D. And there's a, another word for one, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but the word ichad does not mean one in the sense of sameness or uniformity or homogeneity. Rather, it conveys a oneness made up of several parts. And this is why Ephesians 4.11 then goes on to describe the diversity, the variety of gifts that are part of the body of Christ. All of which are necessary for helping us come to the unity of the faith and 
of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the full stature of Christ. Again, the variety of gifts described in this are also found in other writings of Paul. My favorite being 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. I really encourage you to revisit that uh, passage that occurs just before a scripture reading that many of us had at our weddings, right? 1 Corinthians 13. It's sort of the intro to 1 Corinthians 13 and the great hymn to love that Paul writes. But back in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, the first couple of verses, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. So how do we maintain unity when, when there is such diversity? Well, this requires that we remember our calling. You know, we have a lot of vision statements these days. This is the vision statement. This is our calling. This is our purpose. Being unified in love. Not unified in knowledge. Unified in love. The two great commandments. That we love God and love our neighbor. And if this is not happening in the church. No one outside the church will ever believe anything. That we are saying about Jesus. The stakes are that high. Church attendance, I, I will tell you, I, I hear this. Church attendance is declining because we're accommodating culture. It's convenient to blame someone else, isn't it? Instead of looking at inside. Church attendance is declining because when people come into the church, they are not seeing a witness to the love that Christ said would be the hallmark by which we know that God had sent Jesus. Now, a lot of other churches, you know, can combine themselves based on their fighting against whatever perceived enemy there is. But I would say that's off track from the get-go. And that's probably why the church is in decline. Because everybody who's not in it is considered an enemy instead of being somebody that Jesus has called us to love. The Anglican priest who initiated Methodism in a sermon entitled The Catholic uh, Spirit. Now, Catholic, that word Catholic, means universal. And so he wrote this sermon called The Catholic Spirit, and he said this, although a difference in opinions or modes of worship may prevent an entire external union Yet need it prevent our union in affection. Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike? May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion? With all, without all doubt, we may. And then later in that sermon, John Wesley says, If your heart be as my heart, take my hand. Friends, this is the calling to which we've been called. And we fulfill this calling when 
with all gentleness and humility, with patience. We bear with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body, in the bond of peace. Friends, I hope these words will meddle with you. I hope they'll meddle with all of us. Let us be in prayer. Oh God, the body of Christ is so fractured. Churches on every street corner. Divisions within the church, bickering and criticism. God, this is not the witness that Jesus has beckoned from us, nor the Apostle Paul, nor the whole body of Scripture itself. And so, God, we confess that we need to look inside to see where we are contributing to this. And we need to bring that to you and and then find how we might make every effort with gentleness and humility and patience to build the unity of the body. So we ask for this, God, in the holy name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Let us stand and sing together. Come let us join our friends.